I'm Sienna, the kid. I'm Sarah, the mom. Whether you're a young person wanting to learn more about these issues or their parent wanting to find ways to connect, we want you to join us as we tackle some important subjects. If you can't have these conversations in your household yet, we hope to help by having them here. Welcome to Queer Kids Straight Mom. Let's talk. Welcome to part two of our discussion about queer coding and horror movies. We are excited to continue this conversation. And, you know, if you haven't listened to the first part, there will be useful context and also just some very interesting discussion about some very old movies in the first part. So I would recommend going and listening to that first. 1960, Psycho. This is one of the most famous examples of queer coding in horror movies especially with queer coding villains. Because as I'm sure most people know, since it's so deeply imbued in you know society, um, this movie is about a guy who dresses up as a woman and goes around killing attractive young women. Which, if you're at all familiar with anti-transgender rhetoric... Ooh, in a bathroom. Uh, oh yeah, in a bathroom. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> <laughs> all right, carry on. But yeah, I mean, I don't even know how much there is to say about this because, yeah, obviously, it is just a very direct villainization, both of men who behave in a feminine manner and transgender women. Oh, and maybe that if you're not raised by a proper masculine role model. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is that, um, I mean, obviously, all of this stems from like his issues and his relationship with his mother. The idea that, you know, queerness stems from parent issues. Which is, again, another really, 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 really common argument that people will be like, well, yeah, clearly this guy just didn't have a proper role model. Or clearly this guy just didn't have the proper demonstration of love between a man and a woman. Um, Yeah, there is just a whole lot going on that just direct line between this film and arguments that are still used to this day to do a lot of harm against the queer and transgender community. And I don't think that we can necessarily say that, you know, Psycho is responsible for these things, because like I said, horror is not creating fears, right? Like a horror movie that was like, okay, but what what if, what if you were scared of erasers? (laughs) Um, But Uh, Right. Horror is always going to be reflecting the fears that are already deeply ingrained in our culture, especially fears of people who are different from us, fears of people who don't dress the way that we think they should, for instance. Really what Psycho is, is it's just a particularly poignant example of how those fears can be manifested in a really direct way, and also how those manifestations can then reinforce those fears within society. And, you know, when people think of transgender women using the bathroom, they're going to think of a guy dressing up as a lady to murder people in their bathroom. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Psycho. Well, the next movie, Moving Up the Timeline, was a really weird one that I had never heard of, but apparently is this like cult classic called Carnival of Souls. Made in 1962. Movie starts with a car crashing off a bridge and the rescuers are like dredging the river when one of the women from the car walks out of the water, apparently has survived. Nobody understands 
how she survived. She doesn't even understand how she survived. Turned out that she is a trained organist. So she moves to Salt Lake City to become a church organist. So as she's driving there, she drives past this old pavilion. And while she's driving past, she pictures this like crazy looking white faced guy that terrifies her. So she gets there, meets the minister, meets her landlady, meets this incredibly creepy, gross guy that lives across the hall. And through all of this, she feels sort of out of it. And she keeps seeing this guy like everywhere. She'll imagine that she sees him and then he's gone and she can't get away from it. And she also can't stop thinking about this pavilion by the lake. So she ends up going there and then she meets her fate because the white faced guy and all of his like undead friends attack her. Um, when we were watching the movie, I was like, that has to be Salt Air, which is this real place near Salt Lake City that was like a bathhouse and then it burned or something. And then it was a carnival and now it's a concert hall, but it's so creepy. So creepy that that scene when she shows up and there are all those like zombies or whatever. And I was like, that is exactly what I would picture happening in that place. And then I read that the director came up with the idea for the movie after he drove past Saltaire. So that was really interesting to me. So maybe that's why it took place in Salt Lake City. So anyway, end of the movie after she's been attacked by these zombies or whatever, and she's just disappeared. Nobody can find her. We go back to the river and they are pulling the car out and all of the women are in the car, including Mary. So she was dead all along. Classic 60s horror movie where you're like, <laughs> what? What What just wait, happened? Wait, hold on. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So I'm going to take a stab at the queer coding here. Mary's ambivalence towards men, her sort of discomfort in the church like she's a church organist, but she keeps like looking at the stained glass windows and looking like she's kind of freaked out by them and her feeling like she's constantly running from something um, seems like it could be a good metaphor for being gay in the sixties. The doctor she visits tells her there's basically something wrong with her because she's seeing this guy. The minister tells her there's something wrong with her because she becomes possessed and starts playing carnival music on the church organ, which he finds blasphemous in fairness, that would be deeply unsettling. It would be deeply. It would be if really I walked creepy. into a church, especially my church, and I hear carnival music on the organ, I'd be like, nope, I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. Super creepy. It was, it was interesting because a minister and a doctor both seem like the kind of people that a woman who was gay in the 60s might struggle to find support from. At one point, Mary even says, I don't belong in the world. That's what it is. Something separates me from other people. So viewed through this queer coding lens, if this thing that she's running from is a metaphor for her sexuality and it finally catches her and then we find out she's actually dead, you can see why people might have had hangups about coming out. Yeah, no kidding. Society's message. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, ding, 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 give the ally a prize. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I, I think you're pretty on the ball with a lot of that. I think one specific thing that's very important is that we see her basically trying to use John, um, who's just like all. absolutely quintessential 
like the way men continue to treat lesbians um like the idea that they're entitled to them that um oh you're not interested in me you're just you're just what are what are you afraid of men um is something he literally says just absolutely so creepy and gross but we see her essentially trying to use him as a way of keeping herself anchored in the world so that she doesn't sort of get get drawn away into this you know zombie carnival land um which is very interesting uh because a lot of times people will will try to attach themselves to a heterosexual relationship in order to make themselves feel as though there's nothing wrong with them um that was interesting to me because the fact that John was in the movie at all, this quintessential anti-lesbian dude, I think is very significant. Like that wasn't necessary, but it's there. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about his role and specifically that way, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, kind of a way for her to hide. Mm-hmm. So we find out she's dead, just like Frankenstein dies and the bride of Frankenstein dies. And <laughs> did Dracula's daughter die? I don't remember. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because she didn't make this dude immortal, which I suppose that's a whole separate thing. <laughs> right. Death by not existing to fulfill the wishes of men. So that brings to mind this phrase that I have heard you use, bury your gaze. Why, yes. This is one that continues to haunt the world of media to this very day. Um you will recall when we we watched a show on Netflix a few years ago where like there's there's this very cute little queer romance going on and I'm like oh that's so nice oh I love this oh it's high fantasy and there's never queerness in high fantasy and this is making me really happy oh look he's dead (laughs) I I was just (laughs) I was so upset and and no one believed me too everyone was like no I think you're just being a little bit dramatic like like sometimes characters just die and I'm like but it's always the gay characters why 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 <laughs> um because yeah i mean and that's that's part of what it what the deal with the haze code was um is that if you're going to show a queer coded character they probably need to end up getting killed off because it's a way of conveying that their lifestyle is not the way to a happy and fruitful and long life Okay. Yeah. And you know, I am certainly not a person who's going to be like, don't kill any of the characters off, make everyone happy. Like, I love a good dramatic, you know, death scene. But when it's always the gay characters and the gay characters never get a happy ending, it starts to feel like, what what are you telling me here? Like, well, what's the message I'm supposed to be getting? (laughs) I can see that. I think, you know, a lesbian reading of it is very valid. I think another one that probably doesn't come up very often, but is probably pretty important is reading her as asexual. Um, So that's something that I, as far as I'm aware, people were really just not aware of or respectful at all until very, very recently. But obviously that doesn't mean that asexual and aromantic people didn't exist prior to people learning that there's a word for it um and you know again like you mentioned throughout the movie she's she mentions you know not feeling like she has a connection to the people around her and she's just not that interested um and 
again, this would not this would not be like high quality asexual representation because, I mean, it's saying that, oh, she has no connection because actually she's dead. But I think it does tie into tropes about asexual people not wanting any connection and not wanting to be around people and not caring about human connection. Um, And I think that would also be a very valid reading of the film. Yeah, because there's that one scene with the creepy guy where she says she doesn't feel like she needs a man. And then I think she said something like, I don't feel like I need anybody. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, you you could interpret as just like repressed lesbianism, but also we don't want to be over um, just steamrolling other potential identities. And I think asexuality is one that I definitely thought of while watching the movie. For the purposes of research, we had the pleasure of watching Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which I can safely say is one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. And I can't believe that there was a market for more sequels (laughs) after this movie. To be precise, a total of five Nightmare on Elm Street films originally, a reboot, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, and Freddy vs. Jason. Well, maybe, maybe everybody just kept thinking, that was really bad. I can't leave it there. I've got to do it better. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever the case. That was a bad movie. And I loved when you texted me and said, wow, the 80s were wild. And I just want to state for the record that I turned 13 in 1990. So I was not actually a teenager in the 80s. So I'm going to let you take this one because there just, I can't. No, I just want to say that Like when I texted you saying, wow, the 80s were wild, it had nothing to do with the melted off face guy running around murdering people in their sleep. I was texting you that the 80s were wild because of the BDSM gym teacher guy making people hold a plank for three hours (laughs) (laughs) after they got in a random fight in the middle of gym class question mark or baseball practice or something i could never figure out if those guys were friends or not either yeah that was that was weird anyway but yeah i i'm always curious when i see high school movies i'm like so this is not what my high school looked like at all is this what other people's high school looked like i don't know but anyway, uh, as the as the BDSM gym teacher alludes to, yeah, there's a comment in that scene about how, oh, yeah, he goes and uh, hangs out at the queer S&M bars. Um, oh, he he likes pretty boys like you. Again, I want I want to point out that, like, this was an intentional choice to include this gym teacher who's into BDSM and I guess wants to have sex with a teenager. For those who aren't aware, the entire premise of this movie is that Freddy Krueger decides that, okay, murdering people in their dreams wasn't going well. Um, I'm going to possess this teenage boy and get him to murder people for me. And so the first time that that happens, it just it just cuts to the scene of the lead guy. In, what was his name? Jesse? Yeah, Jesse. That the girl? Cuts, no, that was at least okay. the girl. So yeah, it cuts to Jesse in presumably one of these gay clubs where he runs into his gym teacher and then they're at the high school. I don't know. He was like making him run laps to punish him for being at the club or something. And then he told him to hit the showers. Right. Yeah. It was really weird. But then he maybe was headed that. I don't know. It was just, it was very strange and very gross. Mm -hmm. Um, And then all of a sudden supernatural things start happening and like the sports equipment starts attacking the gym teacher while Jesse's in the shower. 
<laughs> so then he like gets dragged by a jump rope t- so that he's like hanging from pipes or something. And then the Jesse becomes Freddy Krueger and like murders him. For a little bit of context, like the original Nightmare on Elm Street is also very, uh, very much known for having this kind of morality purity narrative, like bad things happen to people who have sex. Um, and a lot of the murders in that one are framed in a way that is meant to be kind of reminiscent of sexual violence. And so that kind of carries through to this murder, just yeah, generally very icky. Um, and so that was part of what I thought was significant about that was just like the general grossness and the conflation of like sexual violence and queerness and BDSM. And those are all the same thing. No distinctions. And then also the fact that I sort of interpreted it as this was the first murder. Um, and it was kind of this, it was this like sort of dreamlike sequence that wasn't really similar to any of the other murders or attempted murders. I interpreted it as it was how much Jesse disliked this gym teacher that sort of made him go after him in the first place. And so this this association of queerness and evilness, and that's what opens the gate and lets the evil of Freddy Krueger into the world. And the fact that, like, they made him into, they made this gym teacher into, like, a victim of a brutal murder, but also a sexual predator. Villain and a victim. Yeah, and so there's the love interest, the girl who when Jesse turns into Freddy Krueger, which it's not just being possessed. It's like, he comes like crawling out of his chest. I don't know. That was so weird. (laughs) Um, Whenever he's Freddy Krueger, she's like trying to like, I know you're in there, Jesse, you know, and she ultimately saves him by loving him or whatever. So I thought that was kind of an interesting, like, but the love of a good woman will save you from your nefarious impulses. That was, don't recommend it. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I recommend it if you would like to be very, very entertained in a kind of gross, disturbed way. Yeah. I mean, we got some good laughs. That's for sure. <laughs> All right. Let's wrap it up. This has always been one of my favorites. The Lost Boys from 1987. What's not to love? Got the doors, Santa Cruz boardwalk, big hair. It's a pretty fun movie. And I, reading about it, found out that it was actually directed by an openly gay man, Joel Schumacher. Having also seen it on this list, I have seen it many times, but I was trying to come up with, I, I, we've talked about the fact that my gaydar isn't really finely tuned, but. Listeners, she did not realize that Dead Poet Society was extremely, extremely queer. I was like 12. Anyway, so the only things that like seemed, especially because this is an 80s movie, like not even the long hair and eyeliner, like it's particularly gay. The only thing that like struck me when I watched it over the years was the little brother, like did a lot of preening and he had this poster of Rob Lowe on his wall that was like, okay, interesting. But Trying to go at it from a queer coding angle. So there's this group of vampires that roams the boardwalk at night looking for victims and apparently recruits. And Michael is this kid that's new to town and he goes with them to this cave where they hang out because he's like completely enthralled with this woman that hangs out with them. And 
when they get there, he's eating some rice out of a takeout container. And the lead vampire, David, says, how are those maggots? And he's like, what? And he looks down and the container is like crawling with maggots and it's disgusting. And he spits it out and he throws it and they all start laughing. And he looks and the container really does just have rice in it. And then the same thing happens with a container of noodles that is like worms, but then it's not. So then David offers him some wine and the woman starves like, don't drink that. It's blood. And Michael is like, oh, they're just messing with me. It's totally wine. And they're like doing this thing. So he drinks the wine and becomes a, he'll be a half vampire until he has his first kill. So he gets involved with these guys because of a woman. But after he drinks the blood and he starts kind of hallucinating, there's this scene where he's picturing Star's face and then it like slowly transforms into David's face and he's whispering Michael's name. And so I thought that was really interesting because I guess my take is that I, I guess if I have to give this a queer queer coding spin, it's that um these guys are using things that are actually acceptable or appealing, like rice, wine, this woman, to like trick somebody into having the thing they actually want that they would never admit to wanting into joining their group of guys who all live together. And the only woman is there is like a giant manipulative trick. Hmm. So that that's my, that's my read. That's what I could come up with. You got anything else? No, I'm going to be honest. I don't remember it super well, but what I do all kind of tracks with what you said. Okay. So this is kind of interesting. I'm wondering if it's intentionally a metaphorical part of the storyline. Um, is it just an unintentional viewpoint of a queer director that like, this is how vampires are in his mind, but he's not actually trying to make some statement. I was wondering all of these things. Um, and then I found this article on an online magazine called Mike about Joel Schumacher and how he had this sort of quiet queerness. He didn't, he, he didn't try to hide it, but it wasn't part of his identity to him. He didn't talk about it. He didn't make it a cause. He didn't really like feel like it needed to be discussed. And the writer of this article actually said this. I just thought this was kind of a funny quote. Is there use in projecting queer ideology on Schumacher's filmmaking? Perhaps if that should move you. Though Schumacher would likely find that reading to be bourgeois intellectualism at best and pigeonholing at worst. <laughs> so you know, I think that, I think that's really interesting because it doesn't a queer reading of something does not have to be this is the secret queer message behind it. It can, like you were saying, it can simply be an incorporation of the way that you experience the world. And you know, I, I probably will cite Magnus Archives multiple times just because this is one of my favorite things, especially when it comes to horror. I think that the creators of this, this is a podcast, a horror podcast that I'm really into, have a brilliant approach when it comes to horror. And one of the, the director um, said, the benefit of having diverse characters is it just makes your story more interesting because there's more horrible things you can do to people when they have more diverse backgrounds. Like having diverse characters 
And having diverse creators just allows you to expand the way that you look at a story. And sometimes that doesn't necessarily manifest itself in awesome ways. You know, I'm, I'm looking at you, Dr. Pretorius. But um, if you're only going to be showing stories about straight white people, you're going to be limited in what you can do. And stories sometimes are going to want to pull themselves in certain ways. And if you just ignore that because you're trying to make a story about straight white people, it's not going to be as interesting a story because there were more interesting places that that story could have gone. So given all of these movies that we've discussed and the different ways that queerness has been portrayed, whether subtly or unintentionally, or whether we really had to reach to find it. Do you think in these older movies, especially like the Hayes Act era, this goes to motive that like, I guess we're just speculating, but your opinion, your read on it. Was this more people trying to maybe explore their own queerness or express their own hidden queerness or provide a sympathetic window into the oppression that queer people faced during that time? Or was it more like a morality tale, like warning people against those urges? You know, I think it really, it depends. I think there are some like, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street to me reads very like exploitative, you know, um, and obviously like we've mentioned is very well known for being kind of a morality tale, even in the first movie. Um, but then there are, you know, there are other ones where I think it's a little bit more, a little bit more complicated than that. Something like, um, something like maybe Dracula's daughter. Um, I think you could go either way. We we're just not sure what they were trying to say there. Were they trying to say that you have to fight your, your unnatural urges because you're a danger to the people around you? Or was it trying to say trying to fight who you are will ultimately lead to your own self-destruction? Um, like, you know, that really can go either way in my mind. And I'm just not sure. And you know, have to probably do a much deeper analysis of the movie than we did mm-hmm. here um, to really get to that. But um, And then something like uh, Carnival of Souls, I think is probably much more in the territory of uh, sort of sympathetic, um, potentially um, an allegory for the oppression and the isolation that queer people experience. And then, of course, we've got something like Lost Boys, where it's not necessarily, um, from what you've said about the director, it's not necessarily supposed to be related to queerness at all. And yet the fact of the creator's queerness sort of just seeps into the film because as an artist that you know that naturally happens your understanding of the world your experience of the world the lens through which you view things is going to impact um what you think is relevant what you think should be included what you think are compelling storylines to explore um even if you're not you know even if you're you're like this director who sort of said you know I'm not really interested in dealing with my queerness in film you can't you still can't set that part of your identity aside necessarily it's still going to impact how you view the world and how you create art so what are your final thoughts on queer coding and horror movies why does this matter why is this worth examining 
So I think it's it's easy to be like, oh, haha, this is just a, a funny thing that old people did in olden times when they were all repressed and sad. Um, and I certainly think it's very interesting from a psychological standpoint. And I love to go back and watch these movies and be like, wow, this is fascinating. <laughs> and yet, you know, we've already discussed the ways that this kind of continues into um, to more modern uh, film. We still see a lot of queer coding in in um, queer coding of villains and antagonistic characters. You know, one of the most kind of classic examples of that is if you look at Disney movies. So many of the male villains are very obviously queer coded. Um, and similarly, we've discussed the barrier gaze trope. Um, that is still something I think people are getting better about it more recently. And yet, you know, it still it still comes up over and over again. And there are not a lot of pieces of especially popular media that portray queer characters getting, you know, just a happy ending. We have to be conscious of where those tropes come from. Um, and we have to be conscious of how they're used, how they have been used, and how they continue to be used. Because they're not just harmless little tropes. Um, they have a real impact on society, the society that views them, and the queer individuals that view them as well. If, you know, if society is constantly being permeated with, um, with media that is saying queer people are scary and spooky and evil, like, how are they going to see queer people? I mean, we really discussed that a lot with Psycho and how those those things continue to kind of rebound across society today uh, with how we see people treat transgender women. And um, if you are a queer kid growing up and all you see is you are evil or you are going to die a terrible death, it really, you know, there's an element of like, it doesn't matter how supportive your family and friends are um, because the message that you're receiving every single time you turn on the TV is you are bad you cannot have a happy life. And that sort of subliminal messaging can have a really, really long-term impact. And I mentioned this again with Psycho. I don't think that it's necessarily the fault of media that these things are being reflected um, because that's what they are. They're reflections of what we as a culture find scary or what we as a culture see to be the case. But I do think that people who are producing media have a responsibility to be aware of what their creative choices are reinforcing within society. Um, you know, nothing in at least, you know, in most media, nothing in most media is an accident. Um, it shouldn't be. It should all, if you take um, a novel writing course, they're going to say, don't waste any words. Like every single thing you put in the book should have a purpose. And the same goes for other forms of media. And, you know, it's not an accident that we see a character like Theo who is sort of marginalized and feared throughout the movie. It's not an accident that the gay gym teacher died a horrible death that was queuing BDSM imagery. It's not an accident that um, vamp vampirism has consistently been linked to sexuality and queerness. Like none of these things are accidents. None of these things are um, unintentional. And it's just very important 
as creatives to be aware of what tropes you're using and whether or not they're harming the people in real life, even if even if you think you might be trying to portray a sympathetic narrative about them. And I mean, think about the impact that Dracula has had on us as a society, like the number of Dracula retellings and remakes and just like how, you know, what a what a cultural icon he is. And think about the messaging that comes in in his origins. Yeah, like people were attracted to him, but they knew they shouldn't be. And it would destroy mm-hmm. them if they gave into it. This is really fascinating stuff. I hope you all have enjoyed it and found it interesting. Join us two weeks from now when we will be discussing the 2022 midterm elections and a quick breakdown of candidates that won, candidates that lost, and legislation that uh, passed in referendums or other forms and how that affects the queer community. If you'd like to see more from us, please consider following us on Instagram and Facebook at QueerKid.StraightMom, Twitter at QueerKidStraightMom, that's straight with an eight. And if you are have anything that you would like us to talk about on one of our next episodes, um, any questions or topics you'd like covered, please feel free to leave a comment on any of those social media pages. If you would like to help us help support us, you can rate and review us on whatever uh, platform you're listening to us to to us on and if you would really like to help us out we have a patreon under queer kids straight mom thanks so much